You can turn in the book of Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 15, continuing to read through the wisdom of God collected for us in the book of Proverbs. We take up our reading starting at verse 27 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. He who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before him. Thus far the reading of Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we would be instructed from the riches of your wisdom contained in your word, administered to us by the eternal word who as our great prophet continues to instruct us by that wonderful working of the Holy Spirit, making the truth of your word more precious and more nurturing than bread itself. And so feed us now on your word. Impress upon our hearts the excellencies of who you are as we consider this very evening, our fallen condition, but the riches of your grace extended unto sinners, and the hope that we have because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who obeyed you perfectly as the beloved Son and as our King, Jesus Christ, to lead forth a new people. you are pleased to call your own. Encourage us in these things, O Lord. Impress our truth upon our hearts. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Resuming our time in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We do have uh, one verse which encapsulates the thrust of the question and answer, so I'll read Romans 3.23 to begin, and then we'll turn to question 82. First, this is God's word. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thus ends God's word. 
and Westminster Shorter Catechism, which you can find on page 974, or it should be on the insert in your bulletin. Question 82 asks, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. When we use the word condition or state, usually we're speaking informally. We'll ask about a car. Remember trying to buy a used car and asking, well, what, what condition is it in? And we'll talk about cars in good condition or fair condition or poor condition. I was really into baseball cards for a while. Baseball cards actually get graded on their condition. And as you imagine, the better the condition, the more valuable the card. A bit more formally, we'll talk about the state of the union, the state of the union address, or the state of affairs. And in all of this, we're talking about the current shape of a given thing. A car in excellent condition is one in good shape, without any major blemishes. A gem mint card is a card that is in pristine shape, and so on and so forth. In theology, we speak of the human condition, or more strictly, the state of man, or even more strictly, the states of man, for man has changed. Man is changing, and our great hope is that man will change once and for all, the end of all things. And we mean by the state of man or the human condition, the shape of human nature at any given moment in its history. Now, interestingly, the way that we evaluate the shape that man is in is ultimately by man's ability to obey God's holy law. That's the ultimate indicator of the shape of man. The indicator of the condition of a car is whether or not it has any blemishes, either internal or external. The indicator of a card is whether it has perfect edges and no scratches upon it. The indicator of the shape that man is in is taken by asking, how does he obey God's law? For this is the purpose for which he was made. And instead of just looking at mankind now and saying, well, man is in pretty poor shape, I know that because I have a glimpse into my own heart, we actually give a fairly nuanced answer to the question, what is the state of man? We make careful distinctions that are both helpful and encouraging for us. Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer it gives is humbling. 
but also encouraging and ultimately full of hope. So let's consider the state of man. First, who we were, our past condition, or the state of innocence. Second, who we are, our current condition, or the state of sin and the state of grace. And then third, who we will be, our future condition, or the state of glory. First, who we were, man in the state of innocence. Shorter Catechism 82 answers, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God. And can you hear what that implies? That prior to the fall, indeed man was able perfectly to keep the commandments of God. Westminster Confession 9.2 tells us that plainly. It states, man in his state of innocence had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably, so that he might fall from it. God's Word teaches us plainly. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 7.29, God hath made man upright, but man has sought out many schemes. This is the plain impression that you get from Genesis 1 and 2. As God creates, and it's an, it's an amphitheater of excellence, it's an amphitheater of beauty, of wisdom and goodness and power on display, in which man was the crown jewel. And in which man had a special role and a special place as the one who is nearest to God, made in his image and likeness, made not to be far from God, but to be near unto God, to enjoy the most intimate counsel of the infinite and eternal God. To be his friend. To be his son. To be his vice regent in this new world. Man was created, adorned in excellency, given remarkable gifts, placed in a veritable paradise over which God pronounced blessed and declared good, good, very good. The man and the woman enjoyed fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. It's a brief, mysterious episode in man's life, but it's plain, nonetheless. They lacked nothing. They were perfect. They were near unto God and tasted of the fruit of such nearness. They experienced the joys of the close fellowship with their Creator. They beheld the beauty of holiness, and they knew something already of the goodness of obedience as man began to exercise that dominion. This is what they were made to be, this is what they were made to do. And it was wonderful. People still speak that way, don't they? I was made for this. That's what they say when there's a perfect alignment between their gifts and their abilities and their calling. Or maybe our romantic notions. People will say, we were made for each other. And what they 
experience is a lovely fitting together of abilities and gifts and complementary strengths and weaknesses such that there was a harmonious and felicitous joining. Man was made to fellowship with God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And in the state of innocence, though it strains the imagination and staggers at the same time, man made a small start in this direction. Yet it terminated all too soon, all too abruptly. What took place? Man traded the truth and the knowledge of God for a lie lit by a beast. Our parents disobeyed and were thrust into immediate shame, and upon both them and this world, the Lord pronounced judgment and plunged things into a curse. Things are not now what they were intended to be. Man is not now what he was first made to be. Man is now a great house fallen into ruins. I've never seen any of the great ruins. Have you? Have you visited any of the great ruins? When I lived in Ukraine, there was an old palace from the 17th century, 18th century. It belonged to a Polish princess, but it had fallen into utter disrepair. And something of its grandeur still lingered, but it was a sad sight to behold. Such is the case as you look upon any of the old ruins, the Colosseum, the Valley of the Kings, faint vestiges of former glory that are now strangely solemn and sad in their disrepair, perhaps even strange and haunting. It's hard to imagine man in his state of innocence. I don't know if you've ever given it any thought. But we do well to remember what Solomon says. God made man upright. The current state of ruins is not because of some insufficiency or failed provision or rigged game by God, as it were. Consider the early testimony. God's staggering abundance adorned man's princely state of innocence. He withheld nothing from him save a single tree, a lone bush in all of creation. Nothing but sheer goodness, superfluous abundance characterized man's state. Even in our fallen condition, we feel something of the mammoth gifts which God endowed man with. Listen to Bach. Read Tolstoy. Look at a Caravaggio. Man has very impressive gifts. Listen to Josh Groban. Just learn that he has the voice of an angel. Man is well endowed with gifts. It was not from lack. It was not from withholding on God's part. The sad state of the human ruins which characterize the great fallen house of man rests squarely upon our shoulders. First upon our parents and ours in that we have willingly joined 
in their rebellion. Have we not? As we considered this morning, all of our tongues have set the world ablaze. Haven't they? We can also glimpse in this abrupt plunging from the state of innocency something of sin's true nature as madness. There's a madness to sin, isn't there? A certain irrationality, a derangement that defies explanation. It's difficult for us to remember this as sin and corruption have become unto us a certain second nature. But if we attend to the first sin, we see plainly what all sin is, namely an absurd rebellion against one who is infinite and eternal in goodness, who is light itself. All of our sin is rebellion against light, life, goodness, blessedness, beloved. And even though God's word tells us that in our sin, we're not just sinning against him, we're acting in our own worst interests. We can still justify it a thousand ways to Sunday, can't we? Taste something of the madness of sin. The derangement of sin. And so we come upon the sad ruins of the great house of man, and we pause in solemn sadness with a certain haunted solemnity. We say, how great was the fall of this house. For once, it truly was remarkable. She had fallen low indeed. So we can add to this solemn sadness, humility. Because it's not just that they have rebelled against the true and living God, it's that we have joined in their rebellion, beloved. We've taken up that absurdity of sin, which despises the very purpose for which we were made, namely to know God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So much for the state of innocence. So we consider next who we are. Our present condition, or man in a state of sin, or a state of grace. All of mankind can be classified under one of these two conditions, either the state of sin or the state of grace. A vast chasm separates these two conditions. However, interestingly, they have one thing in common, according to question 82. By God's design, neither of them are able perfectly to obey God's commandments. This is true both for those in a state of sin and a state of grace. And that is interesting. The question states, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. The verse we read in Romans 3.23 is plain. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's true of every single person who has ever lived, save one. That in and of itself is staggering. Of all the billions who have ever walked this earth, only one has obeyed the command. As for the rest of us, none have obeyed perfectly. No one does obey perfectly, and sadly, no one will in this life obey perfectly. 
either in a state of sin or in a state of grace. Now, as I said, the difference between the two, according to Scripture, is as vast as the difference between the dead and the living. As children of the night and children of the day, Scripture makes this plain. But interestingly and importantly, from one angle, God has made it such that even His true children in a state of grace are not wholly stripped of that common humanity making sympathy and compassion possible. Did you catch that? We are not so removed from the state of corruption that we can't look out at other sinners in a state of sin and say, that's unthinkable. How could anyone act that way? All we need to do is look at our own heart and realize even for us in a state of grace, it's thinkable, but we often act that way. In other words, we've not so shed the corrupt nature, nor will we shed the corrupt nature in this life. There's great impetus unto compassion in the word all, isn't there? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a very real sense in which we see anyone, when we see anyone sinning, our immediate instinct ought to be, I get it. (laughs) I do that a lot. I'm constantly exercising the flesh. This is by the Lord's design, beloved, and you can see the wisdom in it. Can't you? Especially when one of the most endearing, the most attractive qualities which we see so profoundly on display in the Son of Man is gentleness, meekness, mildness, lowliness. In a way, it was utterly unnatural to him. How natural ought it to be for us? And yet how unnatural it is. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can consider further the state of sin and the question of does man ever obey in a state of sin? Is man able to offer anything of obedience in the state of sin? We can observe the whole scope of Scripture, and even indeed our experience with fallen human beings who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and acknowledge that maybe at any given moment they might appear to be obeying, doing that which is relatively good, but Scripture says that there's nothing of true and sincere obedience from the heart in this. Rather, In the state of sin, there is enmity with God, an utter inability and unwillingness to obey God's law. This is what Paul writes. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Man in a state of sin is opposed to true good. This helps us understand all those pictures of fallen man as dead, Blind, deaf, crippled. 
He is not able to obey. Indeed, he is to do, he is unable, unable to do anything to improve his spiritual condition. Now, once more, there may be a semblance of good that comes from man in the state of sin, and we can give thanks to God for his common grace. But this is not true obedience. I'm reading the novel I, Claudius by Robert Graves. Anyone read I, Claudius? It's a very interesting historical novel detailing the imperial intrigues of the great houses of Rome from about 4 B.C. to about 40 A.D. And as you can imagine, there is much evil that takes place. There's a lot of killing that goes on. There's much debauchery that characterizes these great houses. But there's also flashes of what can reasonably be called virtue. A sense and a semblance among these great ones of right and wrong and acting in ways that fairly have to be called and classified noble and relatively good. Now, is this true righteousness? No. Scripture is plain about that. Is it better than outright vice? Yeah, it absolutely is for everyone. It makes life livable. Otherwise, blood would fill the streets. We see the same thing in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar is a proud and a sinful man, but he was vastly superior to the imbecile Belshazzar. Vastly superior. Man in a state of grace does sincerely obey. That's encouraging. That our former rebellion has been cured. That hearts that hated God have been removed and hearts that are tender towards God have taken their place, such that those in a state of grace with David can sing, Oh, how I love thy law. We've been given the eyes to see the light of his righteousness, the beauty of his holiness. We've been given life. And life has an appetite for food. And God's word is true food. Man in a state of grace does sincerely and truly obey. But his obedience is so inconsistent, <laughs> and even in its purest expression, is cut with much weakness and sin. I trust I can appeal to your own Christian experience to prove it. If I can't, we need to have a hard conversation, because <laughs> you are self-deceived. Is there anyone who cannot lend the specifics of their life to the dramatic portrait that Paul paints of the Christian life in Galatians 5.7? Where he writes, the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. This within one person. This is difficult. It's difficult, isn't it? But notice that the signs of life, at least according to this passage, are more clearly evident in the struggle against sin than in the victory over sin. That's meant to be encouraging. Because any sober assessment of the Christian life 
is forced to admit that there's far more of the struggle than of the victory. We're not to confuse any triumphalistic vision with the reality of Scripture. Question 82 sobers us straightly, saying we all daily break God's commandments in thought, word, and deed. He's speaking there of true children. Now there's a good way and a bad way to hear such a truth from Scripture. The bad way is to leave off the struggle altogether in a sort of groan of despair. That would be like saying, well, I'm never going to be in the Olympics, so why bother striving for health? The good way to hear this is, if we daily break God's commandments in thought, word, and deed, which I trust you'll acknowledge, I'm going to need you to nod your head just so I know where I'm at pastorally. <laughs> what sort of task is before me? <laughs> if we daily break God's commandments in thought, word, and deed, it means that God's love for us is based on something more sure than our fickle obedience. Something sounder, something more constant than whatever imperfect iteration of stumbling after Christ the Spirit works in us through faith. And that's reason to be encouraged, isn't it? One of the most consistent tactics of the enemy is to bolt to our side when we stumble whisper lies that somehow the Lord will never accept us. That somehow that last failure was the straw that broke the camel's back. That you've finally done it. You've finally sinned your way out of grace. But what does Scripture tell us? Not that long ago we considered John what we have all received from his fullness Grace upon grace. Wave after wave after wave of grace. More constant than the ocean. And that brings us to our final consideration. Third, who we will be. Our future condition or man in a state of glory. There's two beautiful rays of hope in this question, which is otherwise kind of difficult. The first is the opening. No mere man is able to keep the commandments perfectly. But a true man did. The second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Head, the one whom in God's infinite grace and mercy was set forth to be our representative such that we stood or fell based upon his performance. And beloved, he has conquered. He's yielded his life in perfect obedience. 
every heartbeat, every breath, every word, every day was the yielding of himself to the Father in obedience on our behalf, in our stead, to the glory of our God. And in perfect obedience, he stood and was nailed upon that cross, taking unto himself the curse which should have been on us. Saying in staggering grace and condescension, though you have broken this world, O man, put the blame on me. How remarkable is that? It seems we're constantly trying to blame God for our failures, for the brokenness in this world. And though through no reasonable consideration He could be held accountable for what we did, the work of our hands, the sin of our heart, in that moment, our King said, blame me nonetheless. Blame me for their sin. I'll carry it so that they may go free. No mere man. The true and living God, beloved, in Jesus Christ as our head. There's great hope to be seen not in the righteousness which we muster in our life, but in righteousness on display in our King, our Son, our Representative. I would insist with Scripture that the fruit of our imperfect obedience can be of great encouragement to us. We're instructed to squint for that we're instructed to call other people alongside of us. Say, is there that fruit? Help me to see. I'm not really good at seeing. We're called to go to the shepherds and say, can, can you see fruit? I want to see fruit. Help me to see fruit. Cultivate this. Help me to cultivate this fruit. I want fruit. And that fruit can be of great encouragement, both to ourselves and to others. But afflicted consciences, frustrated sinners, those prone to discouragement. In other words, every single one of us, there is no other refuge, no safer place than in the arms of Jesus Christ, our perfect, spotless righteousness, in whom we are welcomed and accepted as true children with the Father. This is our hope and our do not mistake those two obediences, beloved. Do not mistake their different functions in your life. One can be an encouragement. The other is a sure and perfect foundation. And that yields the second piece of hope. For those who are in a state of grace have tasted righteousness. They can say with David, how I love thy law. They can say in earnest that I have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. They can behold the Son and they can say, oh, I wish I were like 
him. I wish my heart yielded in obedience to the Father. I wish my love for others was a fraction of his love for me. Can you see that earnest desire in your heart? If so, be encouraged. That is a sign of life. It is an evidence of grace. And it is also a prompt to look to the day of Christ's return. And the promise that says, in this life, we will only know imperfect obedience from our hearts. But in the next, when he returns, and we see face to face, beloved, then we're going to be like him. The state of glory will be such that we will not be able hearts will be freed entirely from those corrupt desires, from those cruel whims, deceitful inclinations, lust, greed, doubt, despair. All of it will give way to life. And soundness will be all in all. And that's why we press on. That's why we heed the call pursue the upward call that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, forgetting what lies behind, pressing on to what lies ahead, taking confidence, not ultimately in our pursuit, but that we are his workmanship, beloved, and that he will be pleased to bring his children unto glory. For Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. To the glory of our triune God. Join us. Almighty God, we give you thanks. And we pray that you would press upon our hearts the truth of your word, which would posture us in solemn humility before the great tragedy of sin. for the dreadfulness of the corruption which clings to us, to posture us in awe and adoration before the beloved Son, in whom your purposes of grace and mercy are now advancing, and in whom one day your purposes of bringing us to glory will be brought to full consummation. Keep us until that day, O Lord, Help us to exhort one another all the more as it draws near. We ask in Christ.